Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we're focusing on joy's superpowers, special powers each and every one of us can cultivate in order to navigate these turbulent times in which we live. And I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower. And in this episode, I'm talking with Erica Thorn, Hornfall, and together we are going to be exploring the joy superpower of dance, as well as take a deep dive into dance movement therapy. Erica is known as a therapist who moves you and is a board certified dance movement therapist and licensed clinical professional counselor. Erica is the founder and CEO of Chicago Dance Therapy and creator of the Dance Therapy Advocate Summit. It's wonderful stuff, Erica, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're more than welcome. It's lovely to have you here, and I'm really looking forward to talk about this one, either I'm probably the world's worst dancer. So just to let you know that. <laughs> well, that's not that's not needed to participate, feel the joy or be a uh, participant of dancing from therapy. So you're you're in good company. It's okay. Oh, excellent. Good to hear that. But let's start the conversation talking about what was your passion or your inspiration um, to become a dance therapist? Well, I was always interested in dance from a young age. And as the story goes, kind of getting to that point in my life where I needed to choose a career uh, job path, if you will. And none of the options within the current field of dance interested me. Um, you know, I, I recognized my own limits and um, maybe weaknesses in terms of being a professional dancer. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't something that um, again, really interested me, but I, I also knew that that really wasn't going to be where my livelihood was. Um, I didn't, you know, in, in those lines, I didn't even think of or want to be a choreographer. Um, at the heart of it, I, I started to think like, what is it about dance that I don't want to let go of? And it was really how it made me feel. I didn't want to not feel the joy, so to speak, the expression, the freedom in my body when I dance. And that really didn't have anything to do with performing. Mm. So <clears throat> I was kind of at this crossroads, like, do I become a dance educator? That didn't really do it for me. Um, you know, do I open a studio? I didn't really want to have a business around dance, so to speak. And so without letting go of it all together, I started in college as a dance major and was fortunate enough to find um, a, a chair, a head of the department that knew about dance movement therapy. She recognized my interest in psychology, which was always a passion. I didn't realize it, but was always a passion of mine in terms of helping people and listening to people. And she put two and two together and said, you should look into dance movement therapy. Um, that's not an undergraduate field of study. Mm. So I realized like kind of then on, I switched my major to psychology uh, took as many dance classes as possible, kind of stayed on the dance major track uh, just because I had already kind of been in because um, there was no minor at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, just like kept dancing joyfully and learning everything I could about behavior and you know psychology in general. 
until uh, I graduated with my bachelor's and then decided to go and pursue my master's in dance movement therapy. That is wonderful. Uh, you know, you have this wonderful moniker, the therapist who moves you. So how did that come about? Well, I think it started actually because I created the tagline for my business, Chicago mm. Dance Therapy. And one day I was just like, it's the therapy that moves you quite literally, because it is a therapy. And all of my clients that come to me move at some point of our session. I mean, we're always moving anyway. We'll probably get into that at some point. But um, and so I think I was having a discussion with a, a colleague of mine and I, I she might have been the first person to say that, you know, like you could be the therapist who moves you. And it just kind of clicked. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I wasn't interested really in creating a moniker for myself because I was really pushing my business. But as things have kind of shifted a little bit more to um, personal branding, yeah. if you will, it made sense. And mm -hmm. I just kind of ran with it and, you know, made it my Instagram handle. <laughs> and yeah, just try to use it whenever I can. But uh, it just kind of naturally happened. Um, but I definitely owe it to my colleague. <laughs> right. And it's beautiful because it works on those different levels, which I think is wonderful. And right. Definitely get back to the therapy side of things. But I want us to kick us off really thinking about dance as the superpower movement, as the superpower. And do you have any favorite styles of dance, by the way? Well, growing up, I always liked jazz. That was really my forte and tap. So I guess maybe jazz first, then tap. Um, but I think as I've just embraced the power of movement, gotten older, become a dance movement therapist, um, my favorite thing seems to be learning new movements. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a certain style per se, but it's just really almost like confusing my body and keeping myself on my, on my toes, so to speak. So traditionally, definitely more that in-studio jazz tap uh, curriculum, but that's definitely shifted over the years. Right. And there's this thing with dance, obviously you could, you move all the time, as you said, right. But when dance and you added the music to it and you add the brain activity that you, you need to learn and perhaps remember some of the steps, especially me trying salsa. I remember that <laughs> challenge I had going left and right. Um, but in terms of connection between music and dance, how do you see them influencing each other? Does music it's, regulate the dance? Does dance transform the music? What's the connection? You know, not being a, a music therapist, obviously, and not um, having done a lot of research extensively in music, I think from personal experience, I can just say, for me, it's almost like chicken and egg type of situation mm. because I do work a lot with music therapists and oftentimes they'll say, oh, I use a lot of movement. It goes hand in hand. And I say, oh, that's interesting. I use a lot of music because I think it goes hand in hand. So I think at the heart of it, they're both about rhythm, you know? And so some people will say, oh, we inherently move. We inherently dance. We inherently have rhythm in our bodies and that can kind of be our own music. So I know when I'm working with a certain clientele that have difficulty movement, moving uh, or difficulty dancing, whether it's because of physical or psychological reasons, mm. Bringing in music, I always say kind of like unlocks the potential for movement, which then movement unlocks for me the, the potential for the cognition. So music has become almost like a, a catalyst, you know, or, or a, 
um, uh, a stepping stone, if you will, to create some, some movement in the body. And I find that when we're moving, sometimes we can then bring in music to help support the rhythm of the movement itself. Mm. So I, again, that's from personal experience, just how they kind of play off of each other. And, you know, music is universally processed in the brain. So I think that also supports a lot of movement therapy because to ask somebody, you know, to move period, how does this move you? What does this look Mm -hmm. like? is very cognitive and that can be very difficult to kind of circumvent. So sometimes bringing in that element of music allows the person to just already be in that flow of movement and then has better or, or um, yeah, better ability to access their expressions and feelings expressions through, that's... through movement. Right. So it can act as a catalyst or it can act later in the process. To... Right. I mean, there's definitely, I will say there's definitely the opposite can happen, right? So if I introduce music too soon, for someone who, you know, is, is, uh, very, we'll say able-bodied and cognitively aware. If you introduced music too soon and it has a certain connotation to it for them, perhaps like the lyrics or the, the mood that comes in because of the music, you can actually end up influencing Mm. the person's expression, right? Or, um, you bring in the song that's typically associated with something sad and you can kind of entice that person to bring up some sad words Mm. or you know it's kind of like subliminal advertising right so I have to be really careful with the music that I bring in and um you know just know that it can influence things either way yeah it has that emotional connection that you talked about that we have right which is not a bad thing Mm. but when you're talking about therapy you know we want to make sure that the the the, the words, the feelings, the expressions are really coming from the person, not necessarily because of an outside influence. Being triggered by that song they remember right. as when they broke up with their first girlfriend. Absolutely. Perhaps. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, but talking about dance and talking about people like myself, perhaps who assume, as I said at the beginning, they lack a talent for dancing. And, you know, you might even think of it as a, as a torture in public, so why do you think that is? Um, why do some people have this fear of, of movement of dance? Um, from, again, uh, personal experience, but with clients or individuals that have said that very thing to me, you know, like I'm, I have a fear of dancing. Um, it's often because of judgment that was placed on them. Mm-hmm. So somebody literally told them, you're a terrible dancer. Don't ever do that again. You have no rhythm. You have two left feet. Um, it could be this, our size. Sometimes people say you're too large to be a dancer. You're too this to be a dancer. So it's these expectations, these judgments, and these assumptions, I think, that pigeonhole us into thinking that we can or cannot dance. Um, you know, it's also self-critique, right? Self-criticism right. based off of those societal or cultural um, assumptions or norms. You know, if you look this way, then you can dance. If you move this way, then you can dance. And I think the ironic thing is none of us are born into that. We're all born into being movers, you know, mm. children, especially regardless of their physical abilities, you don't have to stand to dance, but there is this inherent rhythm that allows them to move and to express themselves. And at some point someone says that's not good or it's not adequate or it looks silly. And so we internalize that and we keep telling ourselves that narrative. I can't dance. I have no rhythm. I'm uncoordinated. 
Uh, and so the word itself brings a stigma, which I think is one of the difficulties of being a dance therapist is like helping people overcome the stigma of that phrase so that they can then actually start uh, the, the, the deepest, most impactful level of healing. Yeah, of that movement. It's, and it's culturally, I think, sort of framed, as you said, that I remember having the pleasure of spending some time in Puerto Rico and, and there, you know, nobody seemed to really care they weren't mm-hmm. self-conscious of mm-hmm. themselves dancing in the square or in the little club, whatever they were doing. Everybody's just doing it. Whereas I find yeah. in our culture, somehow we very easily become self-conscious. Yeah. And, you know, ourselves. without, without going too deep into this, because again, this is not my area of research, but, you know, perhaps it is kind of that Western model, that Eurocentric model. Um, you know, I think it's interesting that even how I practiced dance growing up, like I ended up getting very into modern dance, which again was at the the academic level. But I mean, modern dance was the the break free from ballet, you know, and from very formal, rigid movement in a sense, controlled movement, maybe I should say. So it is, I think maybe that's why I really enjoy seeking out other cultures, you know, looking at other at the ways other countries dance, because Yes, it almost feels like I get back to the roots of it just being expressive, you mm. know, and that it doesn't come with how it's supposed to look. It's more how it's supposed to feel. To feel, right. And you said the children have that naturally within them. And yeah. then somehow many of us, you know, through experience or whatever, lose that desire to dance mm. publicly, to move. And so then they have this question, well, I can't start now. I'm old. Um, they have done this block because of age coming in and thinking, well, because I haven't done it in years. Um, there's a barrier to starting. What's your sort of feeling with that when you look at your clients? Is there an age issue or can anybody do this? I think culturally there's the age, the ageism, you know, the assumption that as we age, we, we lack or we can't do. But research has shown that creativity actually increases as we get older. So it's almost like, if not now, when, you know, um, and again, if we can separate from how it's supposed to look, like if you haven't danced for 30 something years, you mm-hmm. can't expect yourself to look like Ginger Rogers, you right. know, but if you just start at what you're capable of, and again, maybe using some music to just kind of create some type of rhythm in the body, mm-hmm. um, there's potential, whether we're five or 95, you know, to, to move and to be moved. So I work a lot with older adults and, and a lot that are cognitively um, comp- compromised, I guess, if that's the right way to put it, um, you know, have some type of cognitive deficit or memory impairment. And sometimes a mixture of inhibition, like lowering of inhibition, um, less ability to overthink, right? And to just be in the present and be in the mm-hmm. body allows the most beautiful forms of expression and dance to come through. So you know, to just say, as we age, we can't dance anymore, or only if I have a history of dance, I yep. think is, is definitely in, inaccurate. Um, harder to do, right? That's there's a whole saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> That's not true, but it takes, it takes work. It does take an intention mm. and, um, and time and practice, whether you want to be a professional or not, just, we have to practice reconnecting to our bodies because we don't do that very often. And if it's been 70 years since you've remembered how to do that we can't again just jump in assuming that it's going to look a certain way 
Yeah, I think that's right. You know, much like most things, you have to do the work if you want to reap the benefits in this world. And yeah. I think I love the way you talked about maybe framing it in a creativity framework mm-hmm. that older people could perhaps relate to of seeing dance as a creative expression um, rather than something formal and rigid and I'm not doing the right moves, that type of thing, which tends to be a block for many perhaps. So I'm thinking, no, it's just all about your own creative expression. And which again, we all, which we also get disconnected from, you know, we think, oh, creativity is for kids. And mm. I think, I think maybe that's why our creativity or one of the reasons it blossoms as we get older, because we have more space to do it. You know, I'm not bogged down by the nine to five. I'm not, you know, intentional about, oh, it's about the money. Oh, I've got to support my family. You know, ideally if we're retiring, uh, as we age, as we get older, we have more time for us. And then we think, what makes me happy? What brings me joy? Oh yeah, I remember I used to take dance when I was, you know, 10. Oh, I used to paint. Oh, I used to, you know, play this instrument. And it's like, that's the time that we're able to get back to it, even right. though we probably should have held on to some of that throughout the years. <laughs> definitely, definitely keep you that know. inner child within us alive and well and let her her or him out to play regularly. Right. And through dance is a wonderful way to do that. And I think, you know, dance has a a wonderful impact on well-being on on how you feel and and definitely obviously there's a physical well-being benefit but I presume there are also mental and emotional well-being benefits related Mm -hmm. to dance Mm -hmm. um so that's that's my bread and butter I guess that's kind of my soapbox if you will you know using movement and dance as a way to tap into the mental aspect Mm. um health wellness you know I know it's it's not new by any means for people to know that trauma and movement or trauma and the body are connected, but I think it's really important for people to know that regardless of trauma, um, the body and mental health are connected. We hold all of our experiences in our bodies. We can sabotage certain things in our minds through you know denying our body, um, and so you know I'm very much in the camp of how we move influences who we are. And if we want to change something about ourselves, especially mentally, our anxiety, our depression, um, you know, worries, uh, our behavior, that we really have to look at how we show up in our bodies because it's one thing to change your mind, but if you're not changing the body that houses all of those thoughts and feelings and emotions, you may very well find yourself back in those similar patterns. That, that's very interesting. So this embodiment of of these emotions um, can become a trap in a way if you're not conscious of this link between how you're feeling and how your body is moving or how you're treating your body yeah exactly yeah and it's interesting when we looked into the research we found that there were some certain benefits to to children for dancing that I thought were interesting. So they said that, you know, dance improves a child's self-esteem. Um, it helps them with their social relationships and impacts their life choices outside of school as mm-hmm. well. So some wonderful benefits, I think, for children to, to use dance for their well-being as they grow up. Yeah, I totally agree. And, you know, I know research, there is a lot of research out there, especially with regard to you know certain maybe dance styles the socializing aspect I think at the heart of it 
It is literally how we move our bodies when we're engaging in those things. So, you know, the outreach of our arms or connecting to someone else, um, being vertical in our own spine as we're learning to, you know, stand up tall or carry our bodies through, you know, through a movement. Those are all tapping into developmental movement patterns that directly correlate to those things like self-esteem, confidence, boundary setting, uh, standing on your own two feet, making your own decisions, even executive functioning. So it doesn't surprise me in the least. Unfortunately, I think that part of the research is, is hidden. It's there, but it's in a lot of these somatic um, arts movements based journals that um, people don't know to look at you know, or they're not as mainstream. So these connections aren't, aren't necessarily being made again to that mental health aspect of movement. Yeah, it was amazing. I was talking to somebody in South Africa who was fortunate enough to be going into schools to do this, mm -hmm. um, to sort of train them. And during COVID in particular, which obviously had yeah. its challenges in terms of the social distancing. Um, yeah. But she was saying there was a fantastic difference in the kids after a term of doing this, um, yeah. consciously becoming aware of the connection between the movement and the emotional well-being amongst these children. So it's just like day and night how they were, you know, yeah. after, just after six months. But unfortunately, you know, there it was especially, well, it was only private schools that could afford to do it. But I don't know what it's like in the US. Is there much of sort of a culture of offering kids this type of dance therapy through schools? Um, there's, well, I, I can speak for the Chicagoland area. I mean, I know big, big cities tend to have more resources, obviously, mm -hmm. but there has been a really big surge of more of what we call dance as therapy. So kind of therapeutic dance, right? So someone is bringing in or teaching a certain aspect of dance and there's a therapeutic response. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think maybe not as much through COVID because of just the, the, the chaos, you know, and the, right. the, the uncertainty of everything. Yeah. Um, it's kind of when we needed it the most and it's probably when it was happening the least, but I think there is a recognition that when we move our bodies, it does help facilitate the, you know, expressive side of things like mm -hmm. through COVID, especially, you know, when we're talking about lockdowns, um, just that word, you know, I notice it in my body, it, it, I constrict, I tighten up, mm. you know, and so giving children or anybody really the opportunity to expand and take up space in their body right. is going to reinforce that the mind can also expand mm. and, and share and be vulnerable. And um, yeah, so I, I, it obviously comes down to funding. Right. I know um, like our Chicago public schools uh, do have connections and contracts with companies that bring dance into the curriculum. Mm. Um, you know, as you mentioned, private schools may have better opportunities or different opportunities because there's different funding. But I have seen that probably in the last five or six years. Um, and I know, you know, larger cities are more, have, have a lot of those programs more accessible. But right. the thing is the programs exist. I think 15 years ago, a lot of those programs didn't even exist. So, you know, again, it was like reserved to, professional dance companies, mm. you know, and can the principal dancer of this ballet company come in and teach? Not really. They're busy dancing 10 hours a day, you know? <laughs> exactly. So yeah. now we have these, these wellness companies that are popping mm. up and saying, Hey, 
we have dance instructors, but we're not focusing on the dance. We're focusing on all of the social, emotional, and cognitive aspects of movement. So it's shifting for sure. I think it's taking time, but um, we're kind of getting back to our, our roots as a society of like movement is a way to express. We dance, we cry, we grieve. Um, you know, right. that, that's who we are. We just, we get so much in our heads. We kind of forget that that's where we started. We do. And I think you talked about that movement, you know, we're not there yet, but at least from what you're saying, there seems to be movement in the right direction. So <laughs> right. So Pun fun. intended. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got it. That was great. So we talked about kids and we talked about trauma and the benefits, obviously that dance therapy could have. And I'd like us now to sort of switch and think maybe about sort of dance movement therapy in particular and how it can help adults who aren't necessarily you know seriously traumatized but they could be feeling something's not not right with them they don't feel that their well-being is as good as it should be and Mm -hmm. how you know dance movement therapy can help those type of people and I know many people are perhaps not familiar with the discipline so perhaps you could give a brief overview of what actually is dance movement therapy. Absolutely. So it's also known as dance movement psychotherapy, depending on where you are in the world. And at the heart of it, it's a psychotherapy that uses movement to facilitate emotional, cognitive, social, um, physical, spiritual integration. So what does that mean, right? Connecting mind and body. And for me, it's really all about using movement as a way to observe, to assess, and even intervene in the therapeutic relationship. So that's, that's the really key piece. It is relationship between person and therapist, mm-hmm. um, you know, patient and client or, or, or a, you know, patient and, and therapist, client and therapist. So it really is about the relationship, so to speak. And I think what's so important about that is that's how we heal. That's how we become more aware of our behaviors. It's how we um, kind of gain an understanding. It's having that mirror, Mm. you know, and a therapist isn't there to shame or judge, obviously it's just to create some awareness. And the beautiful thing is we get to do that through movement. So, so often we can say things, but they're not congruent with what we're showing in our body. And not that I'm there to, to challenge or kind of, you know, play devil's advocate, but I can just ask someone, you know, notice what you just said. Where do you feel that? How does that come up? What does that look like? And if they're aware of it, great. And if they're not, I can say, you know, may I reflect what I saw, you know, can we explore this a little bit more? And so it's really, again, this is my approach. It's not really about dance. It's dance as a, um, catalyst or, or kind of container of movement, so to speak. So that's the first thing is kind of, I I like to knock down that myth, you know, of like, you have to be a dancer to participate in dance movement therapy. I basically just reiterate to people that if you're feeling like you've, you're stuck, Mm -hmm. you can't find the words, you have difficulty expressing yourself through language, or you've been doing this for 10 plus years and the words are just gone. You've just talked till you're blue in the face. Mm the body is the way to go. We have to get back to the body because it's housing everything. We just need to be able to access it. So if that resonates with people that are listening, movement therapy is a real possibility. You know, I say like, it's kind of funny to me that 
it's its own field because at some level, I feel like every therapist should have access to some type of movement therapy. (laughs) Everybody should be using the body. You know, Uh, I think they are more, but again, in that trauma Mm. um, approach, right? right? And this is just for everyone. You know, if you run out of words to say, something's always being said in our bodies. And, you know, I have clients that talk, obviously we do talk therapy, but at some point we run out of words and that's when literally we can just feel, be together, notice, become more aware of what our body is saying in those moments. So it's, it's strange. It feels weird to a lot of people because they're so disconnected from Mm -hmm. the sensations in their body, but they do it and realize one, I don't need to be a dancer two, this is more powerful in one session than maybe it's been in the last six months of maybe a more traditional form of therapy. And I have all the tools I need inside of me. You know, it's, there's no guidebook. There's no, you know, workbook that they need to fill out. Mm -hmm. It's just starts with your own awareness, you know, just going internally and noticing what you carry with you. It's interesting because I know many people, maybe men, um as a cohort struggle sometimes to put their emotions into words so Mm -hmm. i wonder if some way this is a a shortcut of a way around this to to feel that expression rather than have to use language that you don't necessarily feel comfortable with to describe how you're feeling i mean i think that's a great point you know that as an example right we may hear you know boys don't cry, um, you know, men don't show emotion. I know that that's, you know, a stereotype, right? But there obviously are men that do. But, you know, that seems to suggest that just because you can't express emotions, you don't have them, Mm -hmm. right? And it's like, no, just because I don't express them means I'm suppressing them, you know? So is there some way to get them out? And, you know, you know, I'm sure there's been research done, but perhaps that's why we see um, certain, you know, men going or boys going to certain sports, you know, mm-hmm. or, or it's more accessible or accepted for boys to go into certain sports because they need an outlet. You know, uh, if I can't emotionally express myself here, well, then I, I can direct it into the soccer field. You know, I can go play football. So, um, yeah, I think that's something we've seen for a very long time. We just don't necessarily call it out. No, we can now but, connect it to therapy maybe as well as, as a way to encourage men if they are struggling. Yeah, um, yeah. That it's with not, their emotions to say, hey, give movement therapy a chance. It could be easier right. for you. And that, it's, that it's not, again, dance per se, but I've definitely had clients say, you know, I've, uh, I've been an athlete my whole life. This is the movement that I connect to. And we're able to bring that into the therapy session. Mm. I've had tennis players. I've had, you know, people who um, maybe have done martial arts their whole life. Like that is a form of movement, right? So we can talk about and look at the different rhythms that come up and how those come up or or are denied in our lives. Mm. There's a lot of different emotional well-being, obviously challenges people have. So whether that's stress, whether that's overcoming fear, resilience, anxiety, depression, the list goes on and on, right. uh, unfortunately. Are there certain things you think motion therapy is better suited to, or do you find that it can work for basically all of these emotional well-being challenges? I think at the heart of it, it works for everything. I think it can work for everyone, but I recognize that 
I think there are there are instances where it will be better suited. And for me, it's not necessarily the diagnosis or the problem itself. It's the access to awareness, the access to cognition. So mm -hmm. I find that just across the board, movement therapy seems to be especially beneficial for people who, again, can't find the words, whether that's cognitive or just I have a hard time verbalizing what I'm feeling um, or individuals who, again, have plateaued in some type of traditional mm -hmm. talk therapy or um, also for individuals of any age who have compromised language, you know, so whether it's aphasia, they're losing their language, or they were born without um, the ability to verbally express mm -hmm. themselves. I think that's when we really have to, to know to, to refer this type of therapy, so to speak. But, um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of anxiety across the board. I think it's, it's great for that mm -hmm. just in particular, because it's so much in our heads. We're thinking so much. We really need to feel our way through, but I think, um, depending on, on the therapist's approach and their, um, you know, field of, of previous study, there's, I don't think there is any condition, so to speak, that I've seen or heard of that isn't touched or managed by some type of movement therapy. That's wonderful. And I've been reading, obviously, some of your material in preparation for the, the podcast. And one of the statements that struck me, I mean, I'm going to quote you here, is that you said movement alone does not facilitate positive mental health. And that is not about how much we move but about how we move, which I thought was fascinating. And I'd like you to just elaborate on that a little bit, please. Sure. Um, you're not the first person actually this week to have mentioned that quote. It's kind of, it's interesting that it resonated with so many people. So um, I think it very easily we can say, you know, just move, right? You go to the doctor, you need to lose weight, your blood pressure's high. And they say, oh, you know, you're a little depressed. You're having some sadness. Like, just start moving. You'll feel mm. better because it releases endorphins. Right. But the thing is, sometimes we engage in movement that we think is supposed to make us feel better. And it makes us feel worse, or should I say it makes us feel more. <laughs> so mm. I've had so many clients that come to me and say, well, I was doing yoga. It was trauma informed yoga. And I had a panic attack in the middle of it, or I couldn't even finish. And I just left. Mm. Why is this happening? It's supposed to make me feel good. And the thing is, when we move more, period, and when, when we move in different ways than we're used to, it's a portal. It opens up, I always say this, this lovely clinical term, stuff. Right. Stuff is going to come up. <laughs> it just does, you know? And that's what you're feeling. You're moving in ways that your body craves and needs, but has not experienced maybe in forever or mm -hmm. certainly a very long time. And so we can't expect that all movement is just going to make us feel better and give us positive mental health. It's a portal to, to positive mental health, but we really need to be careful and examine the nuances of our movement, the characteristics of our movement, um, something called our movement profile, which is kind of all of the, the nuances mm. within the way we move that contribute to how we feel. So um, I, I love to also say that like even yoga can trigger anxiety, you know, because it's not the movement itself. It's how it's executed. Yeah, definitely. So I, definitely it's, it's about the importance of the, the therapist in this case of 
understanding what's happening with them, even if things are being stuffed, as you called it, um, unlocked and un <laughs> uncovered, that there's somebody there who can actually help you then deal with that stuff and right. not leave you to face your own trauma in the middle of the night, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I mentioned at the beginning of our talk that you're the creator of something called the Dance Therapy Advocate Summit. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about the summit? Sure. So this was really born more out of my interest to, um, what's the word? Well, advocate, but um, facilitate more knowledge about the field of dance therapy but also to create some type of community within the field of dance mm. therapy. So I guess it's kind of, well, maybe more, but twofold. The way I see it is one, I wanted people selfishly to just know more about what I did. Yeah. You know, more people know about dance therapy, more work. Great. Right. Um, but I was also recognizing that there weren't a lot of places for dance therapists to come together, to present mm. their information. Um, you know, we, we have a, well, there's lots of different organizations uh, globally. In the United States, we have the American Dance Therapy Association. And so they, they provide, you know, guidelines, bylaws. Uh, we do have an annual conference, but I was just recognizing so many other fields seem to have all these summits, you know, conferences yep. and opportunities for people to, to talk, to convene and to present. And, um, I actually saw a colleague who was starting to put on these psychotherapy summits. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had dance therapy summits? And there was kind of this little voice, in, I don't know, in my head, in my body somewhere that was like, you should do that. <laughs> like, why wait till someone else does it? Because it might never happen. Maybe you could create that. Um, and so for me, it was really not necessarily focusing on research. You know, it wasn't like, here's your research that you've been working on for mm -hmm. 10 years. Come talk about it. It was like, let's, let's have a place where practicing therapists can talk about what they've seen in their work, how they practice, maybe what they've experienced personally going through their own movement therapy. And um, we've only had it two years now, but I have to say like the community that we've, that we've created and um, the information that's been shared has been mm -hmm. unbelievable, you know, and things that we wouldn't necessarily see in a more mainstream educational conference. Yeah. So learning about, you know, dance therapy in the pool, like in a swimming pool, mm -hmm. dance therapy with certain populations, dance therapy with, um, coupled with cosplay, like just things that we're not learning in school. And I wouldn't know unless I talk to the people who are practicing doing it. Themselves. So they're really to get the practitioners share to inspire each other and to grow the. Right. Um, and awareness. yeah, so I, so the awareness has come, not just for us as professionals, but then also seeing it come to the community of, mm. wow, I didn't know it existed, or this is so interesting. I might pursue this as a field mm. um, or I'm interested as a, as a client, you know, and now I'm going to pursue this in my own area to see if there's a therapist that I can work with. So That's yeah, I was just trying to make it more accessible and um, it's been virtual because of COVID, but I think sure. it's going to stay that way for some time because we've been able to reach an international audience. Mm. Well, that is beautiful. And talking about sharing knowledge, um, I understand you've got a book coming out next year mm -hmm. called Move Your Body, Move Your Mind. So tell us a little bit about that too, please. Yeah, um, it's weird to think that it's happening because it's kind of still a little surreal. But, um, you know, 
much of what we're talking about is it's just such a passion of mine. And I'm realizing I have realized, but um, I'm realizing that that piece, especially in mainstream literature, where we connect movement and mental health, you know, and how we move with our mental health, not just movement that we do for mental health is really missing. Um, I, you know, I'm a fan of, of the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and that's really changed the landscape for how people see the body and movement. But again, it's very much targeted to trauma. And I just thought there's so many other ways that we need to be looking at movement and if someone says, oh, I don't have a history of trauma, that book's not for me. Mm. They need to know that actually it is. There's, there's more to it than, than trauma and the body. Um, we're, we all have a body. Therefore, we all can access positive mental health through our bodies. So the book is really a way to redefine our own movement, to kind of examine how we move, uh, to challenge our movement profiles. And again, those characteristics or qualities of our movement um, and then looking at how we can really transform our lives with this knowledge of how we move through life. So yeah. it's three parts. Um, it's, it's obviously influenced by dance therapy. So that was another reason to write the book. It was like the more people that read the book, the more people know about this field, but, um, it's been really challenging and really rewarding at the same time. And, um, it's still not out for another year, but um, I'm really excited and I'm sure it time will fly. So I'll uh, we'll be here before we know it. Yeah, exactly. The movement of time. That's another whole podcast. And I yeah. think the the beauty of it is that, you know, you're going to do it. I think I read even pre-COVID that it was four in 10 Americans suffer from some sort of um, emotional well-being challenge. And that was pre-COVID, so it's probably, you know, obviously much more than that now. So, you know, right. this is now it's probably like needed. 11 out of 10. Right. And, you know, so this is <laughs> this is needed. So congratulations and thank you, obviously, on behalf of everybody in the world for bringing this <laughs> discipline to light and helping people overcome their their mental health challenges through movement. But unfortunately, Erica, that's all we've got time for today. So I'd love to thank you, obviously, for coming on the show and sharing not only your wisdom, but also your passion for dance, for movement, for therapy. Thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, you know, creating this platform. It's, it's definitely necessary. And uh, especially during, during these challenging times. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Before you go, there is always one last question we like to ask, and that is simply, Erica, what brings you joy? Hmm. I think I have to say movement. <laughs> dance in particular brings me joy when I'm feeling confused, stressed, frustrated, confined. Um, the one thing that consistently makes me feel better, mind, body, and soul is moving my body and, and dancing. Well, that is wonderful. And I, I can see that in you. I can feel that in you, the movement. Um, it, it, it brings you joy that, that we can hear and see. So, And I hope you, our listeners, feel inspired and empowered by my chat with Erica today about the joy superpower of dance and movement and how you can use it to add more joy, not only to your own life, but also to the lives of others. And if you want to learn more about Erica and the dance movement therapy, please visit her website, Erica Hornthal, that's T-H-A-L at the end.com. And why not hop on social media and using the hashtag at joy superpowers, share your own experience with the power of dance. 
And if you don't already do so, please follow the Art and Science of Joy on Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn. Come join the conversation and help us spread the joy. Thanks once again for listening. And I hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the Art and Science of Joy podcast, when we will be talking with Andy Storch and exploring together the joy superpower of self-direction and taking the initiative. So looking forward to that. Thank you and goodbye.